That was a little side rant. You could put that somewhere. Maybe that can be a Patreon exclusive. I don't know. I believe it will be. <laughs> that, was, that, that hurt. <laughs> don't, don't say, just let me hear the edited version and don't say any comments. <laughs> I put so much passion into that. Hello and welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur, local filmmaker, and I'm about to go to Austin. And I'm Andrew, professional film historian and the most recent person to 100% Metroid Dread on hard mode. And this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that I haven't seen. But I most likely have. From every year. This week we're in 1973. We're watching The Holy Mountain from director Alejandro Jodorowsky. I always pronounce it Jodorowsky, like like it's a Y, like Jodorowsky. Um, Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky. You know how Y, like when a Y is in Spanish, you pronounce it like it's a J? Yeah. But it's more like a J, like it's like both of them together. It's my Utah accent, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> For any new listeners, you can find where our movies are streaming or available to rent online in the link in our show notes. But not today. The Holy Mountain, eh, not available right now as of October 2021. You can always check again, but we watch this one on disc. Yeah, I think that's how like the next few films are going to go. Sorry, everyone, but it's going to be fun. Plus, it's not like The Holy Mountain is unavailable. It's a yeah, movie that's out it, there. It's, it's, I mean, I feel like this is, for the kind of movie it is, pretty well seen as well. Yes, yes. All right, what's going on this year? What's going on? 1973. We have OPEC restricting the flow of oil to countries supporting Israel. As such, the price of oil rises and inflation rates rise with it. The price of gas, food, bills, and wages all start to spiral higher and higher. Europe experiences a recession. This is crazy, but in the UK... People have to work a three-day work week just to conserve electricity and power. Meanwhile, in the United States, the Watergate hearings dominate the news. Vice President Spiro Agnew resigns for bribery and tax evasion, and Nixon replaces him with Gerald Ford. The Supreme Court establishes abortion as a constitutional right in Roe v. Wade. And this was interesting to me, a group of about... 200 members of the American Indian movement occupy Wounded Knee. Obviously, the significance of the Wounded Knee massacre is important, and they attempt to draw attention to the failure of the United States government, broken treaties, and corruption within reservation politics. The occupation lasts for 71 days. There's gunfire exchanged with U.S. Marshals and the FBI. Andrew, I had never heard of this, or many of the other things happening this year. Yeah, this is insane. <sighs> 70s are a tumultuous time, just like every other time, but, oh, there's also IRA bombings in London, and it's worth mentioning because our filmmaker this week is from Chile. On September 11th, so this is the other 9-11, there is a violent coup overthrowing the Chilean democracy for electing a socialist president. This is backed by the CIA and the Nixon administration, uh, the military takes over Chile, and, yeah, dissolves the democratic government. But, you know, this is a great year 
for movies maybe i don't know tell me some movies i should go watch i've got some i've got some really solid picks in here for you help me to escape the the terrible hellscape that is 1973 have you ever seen lady snowblood no Oh, you would love this one, Arthur. This this is right up your alley. Anyone who's ever seen Kill Bill will find many familiar story beats, music, and editing choices in Toshia Fujita's Lady Snowblood, a really fantastic revenge story. And it's a Japanese film, and it's about this woman who goes on a revenge quest, and it is... One of the most gorgeous, like, revenge films. I, I kind of stopped saying that because I feel like every single episode I'm like, oh, this is the most gorgeous this. Because I'm, I just love movies, you guys. <laughs> I love them. So I, I will always want to shed as much, you know, light and love onto a film I'm featuring. But Lady Snowblood, a really fantastic action revenge film. It's a little under the radar as far as how many people have seen it. But its appeal is massive. I feel like this is a film you could put on for anybody and the group would have a great time. It's a really fun action revenge film. Highly recommended. That's right. Next up, we have a film by a director that I'm terrified to pronounce. Uh, it's called Tukibuki, but the director's name is Jibril Diop Mambete, I believe. This is an African film about two people who are in the Seneg- Senegal. Senegal? Man, I suck at this. Anyways. We're not doing Tukibuki it's okay yeah you're right so it's a story about people trying to rise out of the poverty and the situation that they're stuck in from birth it's a metaphor for humanity and the way we are treated by forces beyond our comprehension and beyond our control it's a gorgeous movie i love tukibuki that director has another film that will also be in the recommendations later down the line But Tukibuki, great film. I've heard that Africa has a lot of great independent films coming out around this time period. Mm -hmm. So the next film is a Bangladeshi film called A River Called Titus. This is a gorgeous epic that shows a multi-generational story of these families living on the side of this river. And they are just trying to find ways to survive and thrive in the current world as the world evolves around them it is a beautiful story told beautifully it's visually stunning this was one of the films that martin scorsese restored in his personal film restoration closet like it's like in his basement or something (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it it is a beautiful movie and uh, i'm very grateful to him for restoring this because i would have never heard of it or seen it if he hadn't a river called titus I don't know if it's on Criterion Channel right now, but I know it has been in the past. Actually, you know what? It is on Criterion Channel right now as of October 2021. And if you're looking for something that is poetic, beautiful, sort of can give you a, I don't know, a sort of reinvigorance for life, I would say A River Called Titus does that. It's a really great movie. Next up is the animated film Fantastic Planet by Rene Laloux. Hey, I can say I've seen this one. You've seen this one. Yeah. You knew I I had to bring this one up. I I love love this this movie. movie. Jinx. (laughs) And he's even going to match up the audio so that we actually jinx there. (laughs) So Fantastic Planet is an animated film about an alien race who keep human beings as pets. And that's really all you get to know about the plot. It's a gorgeous animated film with a style that's really unique. Unlike anything I've really seen in most animated films. 
I I just like watching it visually. Yeah, Fantastic Planet, more like Fantastic Movie. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Uh, you know, woo. And you know what? I just decided to break my own rules. I don't want to give a crazy, obscure fifth recommendation. You know what movie I love from 1973? I love The Exorcist. This movie rocks. <laughs> How long has it been since you last saw The Exorcist? Oh, a couple of years. I think it's really good. Yeah, I had the opportunity to go to a screening of The Exorcist that was inside of a church. Ooh, I bet that's fun. It was really fun. So, yeah, I like I like that movie a lot. I think it has a lot of value and really changed the face of horror in a way that I'm grateful for. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, those are my five recommendations from 1973. What Do you have any that you want to talk about, Arthur? I, I think it's worth pointing out some of the top films at the box office. Uh, at number three, you have American Graffiti from George Lucas. And you have at number two, The Sting. Which I've heard a lot of great things about. Great movie. And then at number one, yeah, you had The Exorcist. Those three movies dominate the box office this year. But you also have a lot of other great films. I love Paper Moon. Yeah, Peter Bogdanovich. Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee's last real film. I, I got to see that one. I, oh, that no, that's not the crazy one. That's not He's the crazy one, one, yeah. Technically, his last film is this hodgepodge of footage where they hire a double who doesn't look anything like him uh, for most of the film. And then they have some fight scenes that he recorded that they splice in. Uh, and then you have F for fake. You've seen this movie. I love this movie. I love that movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. Orson Welles being Orson Welles. But see, that's why I limit myself to five, because otherwise I, I could go on forever about all of these. Mean Streets, Martin Scorsese's first big movie comes out this year. Oh, cool. I read a lot of repressed sexuality and un spoken feelings into that film i see it's never made explicit but maybe i'm reading too much into it but that's sort of what i read into that film well nice should we talk about um a film that has no like repression no repression that's a great way to start it off yeah let's talk about the holy mountain all right so i have written a plot synopsis however everyone who's seen the holy mountain knows how stupid that is in the first place <laughs> but i did write one I'm glad you got to take this one because I don't want that responsibility. I'm happy I was the one that got to take this one, too. I feel like that would have been um, that would have been a lot to ask of you on this podcast. <laughs> Go for it. So the Holy Mountain is a film that attempts to recreate the effects of hallucinogenic drugs. So to attempt to describe the plot in words goes against what the film itself is like. To describe the Holy Mountain is to not portray what the Holy Mountain is as a piece of art. The film depicts numerous members of society depicted in high-concept fantastical allegories of themselves. It's an anti-war film, an anti-religious film, an anti-political film. It is an anti-film. The plot follows a figure who resembles a religious depiction of Jesus Christ suffering and being unable to cope with the reality of the world's struggles, and he crumbles underneath the stress until he finds a shaman, played by the director himself, Alejandro Jodorowsky. The shaman helps the depiction of Jesus find his inner self. The shaman collects him and a group of seven other people who represent different planets in the solar system and also represent the evils of corporate breed, the inhumanity of government, and the evils of the exploitation of children. The shaman is able to convince these people to kill their egos and ascend with him to a higher plane. The group goes on a journey to the holy mountain where they are confronted with their worst nightmares. At the end of the film, the shaman requests that the audience confront that what they've been watching is fiction, a show, 
the camera and crew are made visible to the audience, and we are left to discover the holy mountain by ourselves. So yeah. I think that's a great summary. Thank you. You know, I've seen it a few times. I've actually seen this movie a lot of times. I don't blame you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I gotta know what you thought of this one. What do you think I thought of it? Um, hmm. <laughs> so when I was when I was revisiting it on Monday with my roommates, we were all having a really good time. I mean, it's just such a visually striking film. And so I said, you know, I think Arthur's going to like this one. And so it did sort of become it's not an actual bet. There's no money on the table, but it just <laughs> became a debate between us as to whether you would like it or not. I had you in my corner saying that I thought you would enjoy it from a visual place because I know that you can really enjoy film aesthetics. But there are a lot of really controversial things in this film. There are a number of horrific things depicted in this film. There are a number of things depicted in this film that make you wonder, is that supposed to be on film? Is that supposed to be something I'm supposed to be watching? The whole movie makes you question yourself and puts you in a sort of place of discomfort while you're watching it and then it presents it all in this gorgeous package so you're like okay well i'm gonna keep watching it because i'm visually arrested <laughs> but you know i'm gonna also keep feeling uncomfortable because the movie's making me feel uncomfortable so i thought you would like it but i don't know i, I don't i don't want to project too much on you no i really love this film good 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 <laughs> good 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 well that'll just make this episode easier you know because debating this film from an ethical standpoint is something i'm really not prepared to do <laughs> yeah no that's fair i i really really liked this film i'm kind of weirdly obsessed with it i don't know that's how it starts man my pleasure well i feel like i have to take my time with it and let it sink in i just watched it two days ago and i also feel like i want to watch it again maybe a couple more times because, yeah, it really struck me. And many of the allegories, symbols, and little vignettes within the film, uh, I was just really obsessed with. And then as a whole, you know, ending the film with that break where we zoom out and see the whole film crew. Like, I'm just obsessed with that kind of that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Admitting that everything that's been on screen is an illusion and confronting that in a really interesting way. Like, I thought, I thought this film was brilliant. I really liked it. And I got to think more about it. Nice. I love that. I love to hear that. Yeah, this is a film I love introducing people to. I love showing to people. I'm, I'm not going to show it to everyone because there's no. a lot of stuff in here that's real tough. Really, really tough. No, it's not a film for the general audience. No. <laughs> it feels like something that should be playing on a loop in a museum somewhere. Mm, that would be that would be interesting, <laughs> depending on when you walk in. <laughs> I've only seen one Yodorovsky film on the big screen, and that was his most recent Endless Poetry because it played at the Tower when it opened. Uh, and that was an incredible experience. I really love most of his films. And the only reason I say most of is because there are three that I haven't seen, one of which he disowned, and the other two are just harder to find. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but but the movies that I've seen from him, I think, are incredible. They blow my mind, and they're all this level of uncomfortable and this level of man what even is film you know like you're watching it thinking this is flipping the medium entirely it's just doing its own thing with what a movie can even be and can even accomplish i don't know it, it's something that's unlike anything you're ever going to watch yeah even compared to his other films i think holy mountain sort of stands out there's something really unique about the holy mountain I, I don't even know how to describe it when I'm comparing it to his other films. It's just this one feels 
like the most potent and clear vision. I would say his most recent two films, Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, also feel that way, but they are two parts of what is supposed to be a five-part film series, and it feels that way. But as of right now, this one just feels like the pinnacle of his career. It's, uh, yeah, it's a mountain. Am I thinking of Brechtian theater? Yeah, that's a great, I think that's a great point to bring up. Sort of breaking out of the illusion that is the art and sort of leaving the audience I don't know with a with a moral thought to confront what they just saw I don't know I'm not I'm not putting that well at all I don't like that that's okay this is a tough film to dissect that's for sure I am really excited that we're doing a podcast episode about it but I also want everyone here to know that we are not this is kind of it's kind of similar to persona I was just about to say this is not going to contain the answers or you know the uh the meaning behind any of this stuff I mean you can watch this film with Yodorovsky's commentary track on and he explained parts of it and he tells you little anecdotes and little stories about it but by the end when you watch it again, you think, well, okay, but what about that painting right there? I can tell that's some sort of reference to something. What about that book that person's reading? There's just a million dense references in every single spot and every single scene seems to depict some new struggle within humanity. And it's just, it's, it's overwhelming, but it's fascinating. And you know what? It's entertaining and funny. I love the humor in this movie. I like how silly and stupid the whole thing is. <laughs> There's a big ice sculpture of a giant penis that gets presented on a palanquin and people are like worshiping it. It's awesome. It's hysteria. <laughs> That's just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's incredibly hard to talk about this film, especially with how fresh it is in my mind. Um but I'm curious, what's your big takeaway? I know there's a lot going on. There's commentary on politics, religion, society, class. It's all packaged together in this film. Just the title alone makes you think it's mainly about religion, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, so what's your main takeaway, if you have mm. one? Well, in classic Yodorovsky style, I'm going to answer that question with a story. My first time watching this film was right as I graduated high school. And had to turn it off because I got <laughs> upset. <laughs> I got very upset. <laughs> and it was just a couple years later that a friend said, no, you have to keep watching it. You you can do it. You are ready for it. And so I popped it in again. And it's amazing just how over the course of the two or three years between that, I was able to sort of become more at peace with myself. Because really, that's what the movie is. It's it's sort of a, it's almost like a litmus test or a Rorschach test or something. When you're watching it, it's pushing every button it knows to push and it's seeing how you react to that button being pushed. And I find something really fascinating about that in movies. And yeah, it's really offensive. And there are parts of it that are very upsetting. But I, I do find it very worth it to the end. And at that point in my life, I had already pretty much come to terms with the fact that I was an atheist and I didn't really believe in anything regarding the Christian religion. And specifically the scene that got me the first time I watched it, the scene that stuck out the most to me was them making the cast of his body and then making a thousand different Jesus mannequins, which he destroys and he eats one. And 
it, because it's a very clear allegory to the necklaces of, you know, the cross, bracelets with the cross, like the cross being this weird symbol that's everywhere when it comes to representing Christianity. And it's this thing that, you know, in Roman times was just a torture device. And then it was also a torture device that Jesus himself was put upon and then died a horrible, painful, awful death. And people just like wear it on their ears, wear it around their necks, you know, just wear it places all the time. And it's so it's so weird. There's something so weird about that. It's like if we were hanging electric chairs from our ears. Yes. Around our necks. (laughs) Yes. It's so weird. And. When I first watched this film, I'd already been having that inner debate with myself of wondering, you know, why the cross? Why is this everywhere? And to see a scene like that from the 70s, you know, from decades beforehand of someone having that exact same thought, you know, because that's what the scene is depicting is this person in complete anguish and upset that his moment of anguish is just being made into all these little carbon copies that everyone can carry with them and everyone can have commodified and uh yeah that really stuck out to me that really struck me and that was before i turned it off so (laughs) so for me the film is very much a religious journey yeah yeah i love that scene too although i did take something different from it than i think you did especially because the roman people in roman costumes are the people who take the thief character and then create this weird cast out of him uh sort of an allegory or representation of how whatever Jesus was originally in the teachings that person had have since been replicated and distributed by so many different people. And they're just sad copies. You have all these different sects of Christianity in competition with each other, all of that. And you've totally lost whatever the original person's teachings, whatever those were. And that's why he screams. I I think that's a great interpretation, truly. I I like that a lot. Because he isn't Jesus. He isn't Jesus. Within the plot of the film, he's not Jesus. It, he's just this dude who looks like Jesus. And so everyone treats him like he's Jesus. And even that feels like a layer of, you know, it's not... At this point, we're not worshipping, like, who Jesus himself actually was. or worshipping this version of him that's been created. So, yeah, I definitely see that interpretation, for sure. He is a Christ allegory in in a way. Uh, but most Christ allegories and media that we're used to are heroes, people going on journeys and overthrowing tyrants. This is a Christ allegory who's just a guy on the street. He's a nice guy. He befriends people. But at the end of the day, he just wants he just wants to get rich. He just wants gold. Right. He's a thief. Yeah. Yeah. I find that really fascinating. I also love <laughs> the group of you know how much I love a criticism of tourism in movies. That always will just crack me up. And the students all being shot down by the military and then the tourists just getting on top of the bodies and laying down with them to take pictures with them and posing with them and stuff while they're oh, all yeah. bleeding out. Uh, that's so messed up. It's it looks it truly looks like a scene out of Fellini's Roma or Amarcord or something, but just a little bit more twisted and a little bit more crass than anything he would ever actually do. I've compared Jodorowsky to Fellini pretty much throughout my life of knowing his work because I think that's who he reminds me of the most Mm. as far as his films go. But yeah, I can see that. Yeah, he's like an R-rated Fellini. 
you know, <laughs> he takes it to another level. He's like an NC-17 rated Fellini because that's... I was about to say, yeah, Fellini's not like a G-rated director over here. I guess that's fair, yeah. Um, Really quick, as long as we're talking about general thoughts, I do want to talk about what might be my main takeaway from the film, having seen it once and just giving it a little bit of thought. Yeah. There's quite a lot of focus on the human body. There's a lot of nudity in the film. Not a lot of it's very seductive. A lot of it's pretty just gross and dirty. Mm -hmm. Again, I think it's going to be off-putting for general audiences. There's also a lot of focus on animals in the film. Sometimes they're just standing around on the set, like the camel is just standing there. Uh, Other times they're participating in the weird toad and lizard circus. I mean, the monkey meditating. A lot of stuff like that. There's the monkey meditating and the monkey with the prostitutes. Okay, so with all of that, and then, of course, the discussions of people trying to achieve godlyhood or divinity when we're really just mortals, that whole discussion at the end, I was left with the distinct impression that people and humans, we got a lot of ego running around, but at the end of the day, we are just animals like the animals in this film, bound to our natural senses and our instincts. And in a way that was kind of, that was kind of beautiful. And uh, yeah, I know I mentioned the film earlier, but truly that's the exact same message as Tuki Buki, which is another reason why I love that film as well. And yeah, I I definitely agree that that's here in Holy Mountain as well. There's this certain vulnerable, naked side of humanity that's just on full display here in a way that most artists shy away from and most people will shy away from there's a lot of pissing and shitting in this movie as well <laughs> and it's <laughs> and you know it's it's fascinating because bathing yeah yeah and it's you know it's just we all do this stuff so it's like day why <laughs> yeah why is it so weird and taboo when the stuff we do every single day and we all know about I don't know. Yeah, it's just weird. It is weird and taboo, but that's what makes this film so uh, unique and interesting is that it does confront the taboo that should be so obvious that uh, I, don't, I don't know. But yeah, we're so obsessed with religion and politics and all of this. And at the end of the day, we're just animals. It's interesting that you relate Jodorowsky to Fellini because this review or article or whatever that I found from 1974 from the New York Times also relates Jodorowsky to Fellini, but says that Jodorowsky's uh, like Fellini, but without the fun. You don't like this uh, article, do you? Well, the, first of all, I mean, just looking at that statement, this movie is so much fun. What are you talking about? <laughs> there is fun in this movie. It's not like a demure sit down and have an artistic moment. You know, it's very much an open conversation. And it feels like a movie that's supposed to be experienced and interacted with. I don't know. It doesn't feel as sterile and cold as something as Fellini without the fun. There's so much fun in this movie. So this. <laughs> this article is called They Kill Animals and They Call It Art. I don't think it's an actual review of the Holy Mountain, but it came out around the same time. There's a lot of focus on the Holy Mountain and the author T.E.D. Klein, who is a horror author. I looked him up and his main thing is talking about abuse, killing animals on film sets, and how that's bad, right? Yeah, and he gives himself a fail-safe. He gives himself a way out in the article because he's like, oh, yeah, some people will see animals being killed in film 
oh, animals are treated worse in other places and animals are killed every day. But this is, he says, like a cynical view or something. And I'm like, no, no, it's just, that's just realistic. You know, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Like he also, his main point within the holy mountain itself is talking about the animals that are splayed on the crucifixes. And he said these animals were killed for the making of this film. And that's just not true. Those animals were all eaten. Those were all taken from a butcher shop and then put on the crosses for the scene. And then they were all cooked and people ate them like in real life. So they were not killed for the making of the movie. They were killed because they were already killed for food. So like even that is just ill-informed. There's this weird what about the children vibe throughout this article that I find grotesque when it comes to discussing art. I don't know. There's also this really strange paragraph. Let me see if I can find it where he defends taking violence out of movies. And it's in such a nonchalant way. Violence it's become something of a catchword. These days, of course, all right thinking people have denounced violence in movies. And indeed, with good reason. But sometimes they get a little carried away and act as if the violence on screen were real. So then he goes against that group and is like, you know, we can't, violence against humans is fine. Violence against animals is bad. But he still, in the first two sentences, says, with good reason. Like, he says, yeah, we should not have violence in movies. And I hate that. I hate limiting art like that. I hate censoring art like that. I just don't agree with this at all. And it feels like somebody was asked to write a review of The Holy Mountain. And they were like, well, I don't know how to do that. Because nobody does. So I'm just going to write about how much I hate how much how much animal violence was in it. I love it when I find a good review or article that just makes you furious. Livid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this one got me. (laughs) As soon as we started recording before we'd even synced up or anything, I was just like, what is this? What have you sent me? Like, I was was so mad while I was reading it. Real quick, the American Humane Society is the organization who grants that little uh, no animals were harmed in the making of this film in the end credits and their involvement in Hollywood was diminished in the sixties when the Hayes office went away. So throughout the seventies, they're not really around in the film industry and you see a lot uh, more films with animals being killed or abused or sort of questionable stuff going on behind the scenes. It's not really until 1980 after a scandal with heaven's gate that the screen actors guild gets involved and negotiates for better animal rights on Hollywood movies, at least. And that's just me reading off of Wikipedia to give the listeners a little bit more context on this uh, topic. I don't know. I thought it was also a good follow up about what we talked about last week, because I did mention that the pink flamingo rubbed me the wrong way, mainly because of the violence against animals. Like those were the most horrific sort of shocking scenes that just left me feeling really icky at the end. Mm -hmm. If you were filming a film, would you kill an animal in the film? does the script call for it yes i would find a way to film it and i can't tell you whether i would kill an animal live on set or if we would find a way to fake it okay you know i i consider every life to be special and unique so even the ants i squash under my feet as i'm walking those are animals i'm i'm killing to live you know all right yeah because i don't think i would Oh, I know I wouldn't. I would feel really icky. Oh, I wouldn't feel icky if it was like 
a beast of burden that was going to be killed for food. If the if if it's something that's going to be killed for food anyways, and then people still get to eat it after what we do, I won't feel bad. Okay. I would not kill a domesticated animal or an animal that like there was no way to eat it or do something else with it. I wouldn't do that. I really wouldn't. Yeah. And in my mind, that is kind of what I'm imagining. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would kill a horse. I would kill a cow. I would kill a sheep as long as it was like, okay, and now it's going off to that butcher and it's going to be made into food. I wouldn't care. Okay. But, uh, and and I don't mean to say that as callously. I I wouldn't do it unless I felt like that was completely necessary. Because I, I mean, now, especially in 2021, we have ways of faking that stuff. Um, Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, I think there's realistic ways to fake it that I would feel a lot better going for. I don't know. Do you feel this way that when you see an animal physically killed in a movie and it is mainly from this time period that you see it, uh, does that take you out of the film weirdly? Hmm. It takes me out of the film. I can't help but start thinking about, oh, my God, they were on set and they killed this animal. It's the actual act of filming the death of the living animal that it just throws me out of the film and I can't help but start thinking about all of that in a way that even when I see something that's clearly kind of fake, I'm still like in the illusion of the film. Mm, Have you seen White God? No. It's a really, really great movie that came out about five years ago. But that film, the main character's father is a butcher in it. And the animals he's handling are already dead, but they are real animal carcasses. He's doing like when I say horrible things, I don't mean like grotesque or things that are like, you know, uncouth. Like these are just the way this is just the way animal carcasses are handled in a butcher shop. But they are horrible to watch within the film. And if anything, that sunk me more into it. You know, it was like this guy is an actual butcher. I also whenever I think of animal death in film, one of the most beautiful shots from a movie I can think of is in Andre Rublev when the horse is slowly falling down the staircase as the building is burning down. And that entire movie brings me into this time and place that I feel it it feels like the movie shouldn't exist in the way that it does. It doesn't feel like it can possibly be made within the time period it was made because of how good everything is. And as far as its depiction of that time period, and I feel like the animal death in that, if anything, brings me more into it as well. So I can't say animal death just takes me out of a movie. Okay. I also just have no morals. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could do it. I I would just feel unimaginably bad uh, if that happened on a film set that I was in charge of. I, I, I would find another way to do it. Have you ever gone hunting? No, and I don't want to. I didn't enjoy it, honestly, when I went, but that was just something that we all did in Alabama. So, and I killed a rabbit, and I felt really, really bad about it. I did feel really, really bad about it. Yeah, and I mean, I have meat all the time. But there's also something about just filming the act of killing an animal that I just don't feel comfortable with. But nonetheless, this is all hypothetical because there are more organizations, more people in charge of making sure this kind of thing doesn't happen today. Uh, so moving on to to approach the holy mountain from any sort of angle of, well, I don't think this is OK, is to kind of have to dismiss the entire film because the entire film is, again, just trying to push buttons. And apparently this guy reacted pretty badly 
to the animal button, but the reason it's, it's it doesn't push any single button just because it's having fun with you or wants to torture you as an audience member. It's having a conversation with you. And the buttons it's pushing when it's showing animal death, when it's showing how animals are killed for food is that this is a part of our lives, a part of our society. This is a part of every single day. I and agree. Is, that's that's my takeaway from it too. Hmm. I, I just find it very cowardly that in the article himself, he's saying anyone who says animals die all the time and everything is a complete cynic. If they're unable to view animal cruelty in film as different when the movie itself is making that statement, the movie itself is making that statement of animals die every single day. And it is not a cynical film. You can say a lot of stuff about the Holy Mountain, but it is very hopeful. It is a very open movie and it has a lot of hope for the future and a lot of hope for how people can develop within themselves. It's not cynical. So it's just weird how the text of the film immediately goes against what the author of this article is saying can be assumed of people who think, oh, animals die every day. <laughs> I don't know. That's well put. That's well yeah. put. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. So anyways, moving on. So before this, I'll admit that the only thing I knew about Yodorowsky was that he was in line to direct Dune. He wanted to direct Dune mm. back before David Lynch received the project. But that's not fair. There's a lot more going on with this guy. Chilean, French, artist, filmmaker, comic book writer. Uh, who the hell is this guy? Fascinating question. There, there, <laughs> There's a book written by Yodorovsky about his life. And there are two film adaptations of the first two sections of that book that exist. And they both seem to be very... Um, uh, inconceivable um unrealistic something that couldn't actually happen in the real world give me some <laughs> give me like some bullet points he's from <laughs> chile he's from chile okay it's a start so i'm gonna just take it at face value he had an he had an abusive father and his father was not only abusive towards him it was very abusive towards his mother his mom had the spirit of a singer. She was very much a jovial woman who a lot of people liked, but she was very submissive to her husband and um, he was very dominating over her and took advantage of that aspect of her. Um, <laughs> so allegedly, okay, in an attempt to thwart communism in Chile and assist the rise of fascism in Chile, Yodorowsky's father attempted to assassinate a communist leader, but <laughs> but he became friends with this leader and specifically fell in love with the horse that the leader was raising and when the horse died, the father was unable to go through with his plan and returned home after being gone for a very, very long time. And during this time, Yodorovsky's sister developed a distaste for him because she saw him as the reason their father had left. Okay. But I don't know if any of that's true. We only have <laughs> we only have Yodorovsky's word to go off of. And when you watch interviews with this guy, they are entertaining. But whether they are factual, 
is they they there's just no way they are because he's saying things that can't be real. He lives in a fantasy world and has been living it his entire life. And this man is in his early 90s now and he has the spirit and like joy of someone in their youth. When you watch him talk, even though he looks so old, he has so much energy. He's still up and about doing tons of things, allegedly about to direct three more films, all crowdfunded. It's insane. This guy's life is insane, and he's an insane person, truly. But there's something really fascinating about him. Yeah, so he ended up leaving his family and moved to Paris, where he experienced a tarot reading that changed his life and told him that he was going to be this messenger of art for the world, and he had to find a way to get his art out. So he took mime classes... And became a professional mime and then used that in his first short film, The Severed Heads, which is really good. And then after making that film, got sort of a hang for making films in general. And that was when he made his first independent film, Fando Elise, which is also a very gnarly film as far as its content is concerned. Very surrealist, very strange I don't need, I don't even know where he got the money for El Topo man. This guy's life is like a fairy tale. It's crazy because then it's the next chapter is just and then he made El Topo, which is clearly a movie with money behind it. There's some sort of money behind it or at least it looks great. <laughs> like I don't understand it, but he made El Topo even though nobody ever saw Fando Elise and the people who did hated it. But he got to make another movie that was this huge acid western. That term was given to the film after it had been released. But there is no better way to describe the genre of that movie. It's strange, macabre, fascinating, entrancing, hypnotic. And it's him and his son going through the desert together for two hours. But you know it's been... I don't know how long that movie took to make, but it looks torturous. Hmm. It's a really fascinating depiction of this person's perception of what a western can be and what the world is like anyways john lennon and yoko ono of all people saw a screening of el topo and thought it was incredible and so john lennon convinced the beatles former manager who i can't remember his name it's like alan i think alan klein am i making that up maybe alan klein gave the holy mountain a million dollars And George Harrison was supposed to be in the Holy Mountain, but didn't want to be naked in it. And Yodorovsky refused to use a body double. He was like, nobody else gets to use a body double on set. You don't get to use a body double on set. And George Harrison, he wasn't even going to be showing his penis. He was just showing his ass. I don't know. I think that's a coward move. But uh, (laughs) he didn't want to show his ass in a movie. And so he uh, and so he dropped out of the film and Yodorovsky has expressed regret about that since saying that he wished he could have done anything to keep George Harrison in the film because it would have gotten more people to see it. But I, I, I completely agree. Like he shouldn't get a body double. Nobody else does. I also think that having the thief be just some nobody works way better than having it be like a big star. Real quick, I. I love that you mentioned that he was a mime because this film's focus on the human body and just the way it moves slowly, quickly in all sorts of ways, sexually. uh, That's such an important part of the Holy Mountain, I feel like. And Mm -hmm. knowing that he was a mime at some point, (laughs) that makes perfect sense. Oh, absolutely. Because the whole thing is the human body and how it 
moves and how it interacts with other human bodies. Yeah. And also, yeah, listening to interviews, he's like drawing you into his world. He's like tricking you. You you can't help but love him. Right. His depiction of events and the way he describes his life is completely absurd. And then you just start thinking, I mean, how much more absurd is this and this man and the way he depicts his existence than the fact that we are all like these weird hyper evolved bacteria on a big rock that's shooting through the cosmos. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> why not just believe what the guy says about his life? Just go for it. You know, it's easy. the fact that he uh, doesn't seem to take a lot of this seriously like he does, but he kind of doesn't like it's all kind of just a game or a trick to him makes it a lot more appealing as well. Mm hmm. Like he says that the tarot reading changed its life. I also read that he stayed up for like a week straight before filming this movie. Yeah, he and his wife, they they <laughs> did allegedly did not sleep for a week straight as part of this shaman exercise. So so that claim is kind of impossible to believe, but at the same time, okay, whatever. Yeah, maybe, maybe you oh, can. Sure. Maybe Let's you can. Let's go with it. Uh, but the way this film ends and, you know, the the people pull the mask from the dummy and it's him underneath and he's just kind of saying ha ha and wiggling his hands like this is all some big trick. Right. Uh, and then at the very end, of course, saying this is all a film. This is all make believe. Yeah, it works. It's fun. Yeah, there does. There is a sense of safety and community within this film that's difficult to describe unless you're actually watching it. And I think that makes the tougher parts of it easier to swallow. Yeah. Because, again, you never feel like you're being talked down to. You never feel like you're being criticized. You never feel like someone is, you know, chastising you. They might be chastising something that you participate in. They might be chastising something that you are aware of and don't really think about too often. But the movie itself is just a person trying to say, I just want people to be aware of these things around themselves and for people to be able to be happy within themselves. That's like the desire of the film is for you as a human being to be more at peace with yourself. Nice. And yeah, there's something there's something really nice about that. Wish every movie made me feel that way. Do you know how this film was received and what kind of audience it drew in when it was initially released? It was honestly very hard to find a review or any sort of mention of this in press at the time. Well, so I'm going to just go off of what Yudorowsky said. <laughs> okay. Let's go for it. Cuz that's the, you know that's what we have. Um so this film was released exclusively at midnight showings and eventually was released as a double bill with El Topo. Um, yeah, it's a cult movie, Holy Mountain. Literally feels like Hodorowski leading a cult, though. Yes. It feels like he's actively <laughs> asking you, the audience, to join it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, the cult film in the way that we know the word, but also a cult. A literal cult film. Yeah, a literal cult film. Yeah, yeah I this guess. And, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. What do you want to say about this? You you put this in the show notes. So don't let me don't let me steal this from you. You clearly have thoughts. Um, you do say here in our show notes, comparing this film to something like Pink Flamingos, and in parentheses depicting spirituality in film. Do you see Pink Flamingos as a spiritual film? <laughs> <laughs> For me, you know, maybe I do. Maybe, I, I think that there's something interesting about Pink Flamingos that is also in the same vein as Holy Mountain trying to 
push as many buttons as it can and test the audience in a way that makes you aware of yourself and makes you ask yourself questions, which I think can tie deeply into spirituality. And, you know, I've been saying for a long time that movies are my religion. Like, they just are. There's no other way of putting it. I don't worship anything and I don't, you know, pray to anything, but it definitely is what I study in my day to day and it definitely is what I base my life around. Okay. What Jesus said in the Bible versus what movie is coming out next weekend and how those affect my life and what I'm doing with my choices, the comparison, there is no comparison. I care about one and I don't know about the other anymore. I, the other I erased permanently from my mind. So that's that's how I feel. Yeah, I would know? really like to know what audiences back in the day were saying and thinking about this film. It was nice to see the footage of audience members stumbling out of pink flamingos after they had seen it at midnight and their fresh takes. Exactly. I love religious film. That's what the guy <laughs> says. He says, I love religious film. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it would be very interesting to see all the different takes from people who had stumbled out of the midnight screenings of The Holy Mountain. Yeah. Do you know anything about what happened to this movie after it was released? Didn't it disappear? So, you know, this was before we would have even known about The Holy Mountain, but allegedly for a couple decades there, it just was completely unavailable and it sort of became this myth of a movie, which... This movie, you forget details about it while you are watching it. There's so many things happening and you are so overstimulated that there's no way to remember it all. So it is funny that it just had this period of time where nobody could watch it and it took on a mythical quality because that is the only thing that could possibly happen. But then, yeah, it came back in the, I think it was like early 2000s. Yeah, there was some dispute with the producers or the studios and uh, the distributors. But I I just love that, that part of the story of this film, that it became this thing that people were like, did I see that? Yeah. This this crazy film. I can see people describing it to uh, their friends. I mean, like, I swear, it starts off with these two, like, Marilyn Monroe looking people. And then they're, like, stripped naked and shaved. Uh, trust me, it, it's out there. I, I saw this. There's this prostitute and a monkey, and they're, like, walking around behind. They're, like, always there when the action's happening. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it came out in 1973? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you sure yeah. you didn't just make that up? Yeah, it's like I was doing a lot of drugs, so I, <laughs> that just felt like one of my trips now. But this seems like it's totally up your alley, because I remember during the silent era, you were totally obsessed with how... A lot of films uh, were missing, forgotten, uh, changed over the years. And it it is interesting that a film as recently as 1973 still went through something like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny talking about the silent era movies because, man, like thinking about how we were discussing the Hayes Code, you know, relatively recently, you know, just a few months ago as far as episodes. And now we're watching The Holy Mountain and it's like... What censorship, you know, what like there is going. literally couldn't be. There's not a single ounce of censorship in this thing. Uh, <laughs> no. Well, we promised you that we would come to no bold conclusions. And here we are. I would say no conclusions. <laughs> bold or soft. But this film is still pretty fresh for me. I'm pretty sure I really, really loved it. Uh, but I got to let it sit with me. I got to watch it again. I got to think about it some more i will say i've seen this movie many many times and it was this most recent viewing 
that on my letterbox, I gave it the five star review. I don't know. Something about watching it this most recent time was like, yeah, no, there's just absolutely nothing I would change about this movie. And I do think it is perfect. And so here we go. Five out of five. Let's add another movie to the list. Hell yeah. Well deserved. Again, I just love how it ends. Yeah. I love that there's so much going on and there's allegories and symbols throughout the entire film. And there's a lot of notes on politics, war, so much about religion and spiritual journeys and whatnot. And then at the very end to have this seriously, to have like this holy grail moment where they just zoom the camera out and it's like, nope, none of this was real. Uh, the the actors might as well be led away and the film just cuts to black like Monty Python did. To have that be the ending was pretty startling. And I I, I loved it because it kind of leaves you with this feeling of now what? What do I do with this? And that's why I love endings like that. Makes you think. It, may, it, it leaves you... Uh, wrestling with your own interpretations and what you need to take from this, from all of this nonsense that the director threw at you. What does it all mean? It's up, up to you to decide. Mm-hmm. But we got to give you some of our interpretations on this episode of A Century in Cinema. A few, yeah. I mean, is that it? It feels That felt like a pretty final moment to me. I dig it. I'm bringing you into a more comfortable space for this next movie, rounding out this fun little trio of really crazy cult classics that were appraised later in life with Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, which is a musical adaptation of the Phantom of the Opera that came out, hold, which came out 13 years before Andrew Lloyd Webber's adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. Hmm. This is the... Best new movie I've seen this year. It is my favorite movie of the year so far that I've watched for the first time. And we went through a lot of debate over what to watch for this next year. Not because of contingent, but just because we kept changing our minds. And I'm really excited that we settled on this one because it's such a it's such a fun movie. And also Kagan's going to be joining us next week for another musical review. Yeah, because this is a rock opera. Yes, this, the music in this movie, oh, it rips my heart out, tears it apart, throws it back in. This this movie has gorgeous music. It's so <laughs> good. I, I'm gonna tr- I'm, I'm about to hype it up too much because this is when I watch this for the podcast. This is gonna be the fifth time I've watched this movie this year because I just watched it for the first time over the summer, and huh. I'm, I've become obsessed. I've been teaching myself the songs on the piano. I'm like obsessed with this movie right now. So I'm excited to get like, I don't know. I'm excited to be able to bring in that perspective of Andrew has a new favorite because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, But when it does, I take it very seriously. And I knew the second I watched this movie, like, oh, yep, new favorite. Yeah, I'm excited to get to have that perspective. Cool. And it's a comedy. I'm looking forward to it. You've hyped it up. Yep, I'm a hyper. And I also I really just want to circle back and make sure I hammer this in. People out there who've seen The Holy Mountain and El Topo, seen the two big ones, never ventured out. You owe it to yourselves to watch The Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry. Those are two fantastic films. Endless Poetry was my was in my top films of the decade with Blade Runner 2049 and The Handmaiden. Those were the top three of the whole decade for me. It's an incredible journey in cinema. Highly recommended. 
that's our show. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We love having you here. A big thank you to those who have left reviews and stars on Apple Podcasts and helping us gain traction in that algorithm. Also, thank you to those contributing to our Patreon. You're keeping the show funded, you're getting some bonus content, and we appreciate you so much. Thank you. We love hearing from you folks. We have a Facebook where you can let us know if you liked an episode, if you found a new film that you really enjoyed. That's at A Century in Cinema on Facebook. Andrew, thank you so much, man. Good episode this week. Yeah, I felt good. I felt great about this. This felt really fun. Another good one.